Morning, everyone. How are we today? Good. It's a difficult question to ask a group. That's actually absurd to ask that question of a group of people. Uh, anyway, uh, it's great. It is great to see you here today on this long weekend. Uh, it looks like we have a few uh, people away. Trust that they're having a, a great break. Trust that you're having a great break. Um, I'm not sure if you are aware, but uh, last week actually was National uh, Reconciliation Week. And, um, and on occasions like these, we do uh, like to bring uh, a, a uniquely Christian perspective to some of these issues. Uh, issues like this, we have the opportunity actually to bring, uh, to bring a perspective that can be genuinely helpful, but also genuinely, uh, genuinely Christian in this sense. And there are a lot of things to say about this. And this isn't going to be the focus of my message today. Actually, what I'm going to talk about today is kind of continuous with what I spoke about uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but it also, uh, also relates uh, to, this, to this particular issue. Um, I read uh, <clears throat> some time ago, uh, I read an amazing book. It's an enormous book, actually, by uh, an Australian uh, linguist and Bible translator, uh, who lived amongst uh, indigenous people for for some time, and he um, he wrote this incredibly well researched uh, book called One Blood. These John Harris is his name, and the book is called One Blood, and it's uh, it's the um, it's a history of is uh, particularly focusing on the Christian encounter with indigenous peoples uh, in these uh, in this country, um, and it's a very up and down. You know, lots of errors made, but there are good things too. It's a real mixed, uh, real mixed sort of account in that sense. But in the course of telling this story, he. Um, you know, he goes through and he tells the story of many of the atrocities that occurred uh, in this country on Indigenous peoples. And one of the reasons why I appreciate uh, this book is that, I mean, one of the reasons it's so enormous is that he, because continually referring to a lot of primary sources, you know, a lot of letters and documents and, uh, that, were, that were written at the time. And, uh, and, and I like that because I'm always a little bit suspicious when reading about histories of issues that are very emotionally charged and a bit suspicious, a bit suspicious of the subjectivity that, uh, that can enter into that. So I appreciated this uh, account. And, and I think, uh, you know, um, one of the things that struck me when I read that was uh, actually it was really, really terrible. Some really terrible things happened uh, in this country that we enjoy. Uh, you know, we enjoy the fruit of this land in many respects, but we walk on soil that is blood-soaked soil in many respects. And... Um, uh, and so this is, you know, this is an important issue uh, in our country. And as I said, it's an issue that I think we have a, uh, a very unique uh, voice to bring to this. Now, what I'm going to, the way that, that, that I just want to approach this, and as, as I said, I'm going to move into, uh, into uh, a, a bigger topic that I think actually is important personally for each one of us. Um, I'm, I'm not a fan of just talking to issues uh, kind of out there. I feel sometimes... Um, the way that these issues get talked about is like we're all sitting in an arena and, and on the field there are good guys and bad guys and we're booing the bad guys and cheering the good guys and, you know, we're all in the stand and we assume that if we're cheering the good guys, then we're good guys too, aren't we? 
we must all be good guys because we're cheering the good guys and booing the bad guys. Uh, there's a real problem with that, with that approach um, because uh, as I'm going to uh, un- underline uh, today, uh, actually we're kind of all bad guys. Now, I just don't, don't run away too soon uh, because, uh, you know, I- I've got some good news for you. Um, so, uh, and please don't throw anything. Uh, just give me a chance first uh, to explain that. Um, as I said, let me, uh, let me uh, talk about this first personally because when uh, I, I read uh, this book and uh, I, actually, I actually found it deeply disturbing and, uh, and I found my initial responses that I got very angry that, that human beings could do these kinds of things to other human beings or, or, or even you know, doubt that these people were even human beings. And if you know the history, that's, that was the case too. And, uh, and so it, it, you know, it made me angry you know, and probably you know, rightly so uh, in a sense. But I realised actually as I... Uh, and this is, you know, this is something too because we're constantly confronted in our world today with atrocities. There are things that happen in this world that are terrible, terrible things, not only in the past but in the present, right? And we always have a choice when confronted with those things. We have a choice between two kinds of responses. Either we can set ourselves off from the people that are doing that evil and judge them or we can choose to identify with them. Um, now, I know at this stage, you're probably feeling a little uncomfortable about the second one, and, and maybe you think there must be something in between, but again, let me, uh, let me make my case here. Certainly in this case, I realised that these two options became very apparent to me because I realised that my response of anger probably wasn't going to go anywhere healthy because basically it, was, it would cause me to set myself off from those people, to assume that, well, if, you know, if I had been there and under the same conditions and so forth and in, in that time, well, I would never have been a part of that sort of thing. You know, assumption, uh, that would have been the immediate assumption. Uh, you know, this is how, by the way, these things happen again and again, because people just assume that. Well, if I lived back then, I would never have, you know, uh, d- done such a thing. Now, and so I realised that actually just being angry isn't, wasn't going to lead me to uh, a constructive response, certainly uh, not for me personally. Um, and so this led me to reflect on the causes, actually, the causes of the mentality that led to these crimes. And I realised, really, there is a kind of superiority complex um, certainly, uh, I, I know that uh, for me, and I, I have, um, you know, m- even my, my own uh, sort of cultural background does come with a very strong superiority complex. And, and I actually reflected on that, and I realised how much of that superiority complex, I, I actually, as I, because I was praying about this, you know, this is uh, what we do when we're confronted by things, Lord, how do you want me to respond? As I prayed about this, I realised that a lot of the superiority complex that I'd read about in that book, actually, that a lot of that was in me. And it actually shocked me to realise how much of that actually was in myself. I was actually quite devastated by that. And it actually led me, rather than setting myself off from those people, that I actually was able to identify instead. And this became really 
an imp- very important spiritual moment for me, actually. It was a very important moment for me uh, to deal with something in my life that God actually wanted to deal with. It's really important that we recognise when confronted by, uh, by evil that, in a sense, we are, as human beings looking in the mirror in the sense that we all share a common human nature. I, I shared with you recently, uh, reading uh, to, to, to cite another book um, uh, that I read recently about Vladimir Putin. Um, and I had this, uh, you know, I told you, uh, I was sort of indignant at all these terrible things uh, that, that, were, that I was reading about in the book. But I had this growing feeling that I had more in common with this guy than there was difference. <laughs> <laughs> and that growing sense of a fundamentally shared human nature. You see, the core problem in human nature is that we, and this is really the core problem even underneath a kind of cultural superiority complex, is that we all share, and this is really the core problem with human nature that we all share, is this kind of God complex. This was the nature of the first temptation uh, in, in Genesis 3, you'll read about the very first temptation, you, and, then do this, and then you will be like God. It was the temptation for us to be gods unto ourselves, ruling our own little universe, controlling people. You know, uh, it's the thing that is pervasively true about human nature, the God complex. And... We all share this. Christianity is really, in, in a wonderful sense, a great leveller of humankind. It tears down all false pretensions of righteousness and entitlement and builds a new humanity based entirely on grace. Because as the Bible says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in uh, the book of Romans in the New Testament. We have all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God but all are made right with God through grace. And reconciliation begins with us being, recognising that and being reconciled to God. And from that footing, we can then be reconciled with one another because we acknowledge that we share in the same humanity, in the same need, and we relate to one another on the same footing, the footing uh, of grace. Uh, one, more, uh, one more little footnote uh, to a book and then I'll, I'll, I'll stop uh, showing off about how many books I read. Um, there's a, 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 there was a famous uh, trial in the early 60s, um, uh, the trial of Adolf Eichmann who was responsible for the, the transports of Jewish people to the concentration camps. And he was, uh, he was uh, you know, on the run for a while, but uh, he was apprehended and brought to trial, actually, in Jerusalem. Uh, Adolf Eichmann, famous trial in Jerusalem. Uh, I think it was about 1961. And this trial was covered uh, by a, a Jewish philosopher called Hannah Arendt. And uh, she wrote a very, what is now a very famous book called um, Eichmann in Jerusalem. And uh, the, the, the subtitle of the book is very, very Interesting. Subtitle of the book is A Report on the Banality of Evil. Now, the word banality means something common. If something is banal, then it's just really common, right? And it struck uh, Hannah as she was 
as she was uh, attending these, these trials that went on for quite some time, it struck her that the prosecutors kept trying to look for, in Eichmann, they kept trying to find extraordinarily evil human motives, right? He did, because, you know, he was part of something extraordinarily evil, right? And so there must be, you know, there must be something about this guy that, that is sort of extraordinarily evil. And, and, and they kept, it, it, it became very apparent to everyone, actually, that he was kind of an ordinary person. You know, well, I just took that job because that was, you know, it's kind of natural opportunism and he was climbing the ladder and doing all the things that everyone else did. But they, you know, and it was kind of frustrating for them, she records, because they're trying to find these deep human motives. You see, the thing is, as human beings, we like to caricature evil people in a way that, so that they look nothing like us. And there was this emerging uncomfortable realization that actually Adolf Eichmann was exactly like us. Not that much different from us. And this was an uncomfortable realization <laughs> that occasioned the writing of this book. And this is essentially what causes us when confronted by situations of evil. It's what causes us to set ourselves off. Oh, I, well, I would never, that would never, I would never have. We set ourselves off and we play judge. And playing judge, mind you, is a form of superiority complex. It's a different form, but it's another form. It's exactly the same thing. It's moral superiority, and that is grounded in the God complex, i.e. us playing judge, right? Now, in Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus had this to say. Jesus had a lot of good things to say. And if you are exploring faith, I would recommend you begin with the accounts of Jesus' life. In the Gospels, if you go about 80% of the way through the Bible, the best bits start then. I mean, all, it's all great. <laughs> but uh, if you start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, man, you, I don't believe it's possible to read the life and teaching of Jesus and not be deeply, deeply impacted by it. Anyway, amongst all of the amazing things that Jesus had to say, he said this in Matthew chapter seven, from verse one. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And the measure you use will be measured to you. When you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention, uh, sorry, let me start that again. I've got the wrong glasses on. I'm gonna blame my glasses. It wasn't my mistake. It was the mistake in my glasses. Why? Do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now the idea here of the speck of sawdust and the plank, and, and this is the point of the illustration, is that specks of sawdust come from the plank, right? <laughs> the speck of sawdust comes from the plank. So we've all got, in a way, we've all got the plank. 
the speck of sawdust, the plank in a sense, is the, like the God complex, the human nature that we all share. Moral differences, if I may put it that way, are like specks of sawdust compared to the problem of the plank, right? That's the moral differences. So Jesus says, so don't, for goodness sake, don't judge one another by moral differences. Oh, he did, I can't believe he did that. Can you believe that guy and what he did? Oh my goodness. That's the speck. And the person saying that has the plank that creates the speck. It's just that your specks are probably different. Anyway, let's not push the, uh, the metaphor too far here. <laughs> but you get my point. And this, unfortunately, you know, when confronted by evil, it can lead us to unhelpful and actually unhealthy responses. Because we're all rushing around looking for the evil people. Who did this stuff, right? We're all rushing around looking for... And actually, that kind of approach, that sort of angry activist approach, and there is a place for activism, don't get me wrong, but that sort of angry activist approach, uh, approach can simply be just an exercise in mass hypocrisy because we all share this God complex. We all share this superiority complex. And one of the forms of that superiority complex is moral superiority. Moral superiority. And actually, the interesting thing is Jesus treated moral superiority as the worst of all kinds of superiority. So, let's not criticise the speck. Now, there are a number of biblical uh, practices uh, practices, sorry, that are enjoined uh, in Scripture, actually in, in Old Testament times, in particularly in the law of Moses, that are very interesting uh, in this respect because they were created to cultivate an awareness of this common humanity. It was a practice of corporate confession. And this is so alien to us in our very individualistic culture, but I feel that this practice, and this is really what I want to get onto uh, today, not to say that those issues that I talked about then are uh, not important, and I've only just begun to give you something, a starting point. There's a starting point on that or any other issue that actually is, I think, uniquely Christian uh, as an approach. There's lots more that I could uh, say uh, about that. I am, by the way, not ever going to advise you on how you should respond politically to issues like that. We will, we will certainly talk about values that might inform political decisions that you make. But there's a very big difference between, say, a moral, spiritual decision and a political decision. Politics is immensely, immensely complex. And uh, it's, it's very uh, important that uh, actually we recognise that difference. Because, you know, for example, we might hold a moral principle and believe that a certain practice is immoral, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it should be illegal, right? That's the difference. And so, uh, so we will 
We will talk about values that may inform political uh, decisions that we make, but we will always stop short of uh, offering political advice any more than I would from the front offer medical advice or legal advice to you. For example, that would be uh, that would be wrong of me uh, to do that. Uh, I believe so. Um, uh, but not to say that you know I think these are issues that we should be informed about and uh, and and engaged with. We're not about being politically disengaged. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, we, we need to do that with wisdom, but most of all with some of these principles because we're concerned about how we are responding individually, right? And as I've said, it's possible for us to respond in ways actually that drive our problems deeper in and make us worse as people. As I said, there is this practice in uh, throughout Scripture, actually, uh, Old and New Testament, this practice of corporate confession, and I think there's something in this for us where we're at as a church. I think there's something here in this practice of corporate confession. They would confess sins corporately because they understood that what you do affects me and what I do affects you when we're all part of a network of humanity. In our culture, we tend to think of human beings as disconnected autonomous units. And that's a false view of humanity on actually anyone's account, even in philosophy. That's a, that's a false view uh, of human identity. We are, we are all interconnected, right? Uh, and, and so this practice, I believe, this biblical practice of corporate confession, I think, uh, is, is marvellous in the sense that it addresses something. Uh, now, first of all, it addresses this propensity within us, this God complex, uh, and certainly this propensity to play judge, because what they would do is that they would celebrate these festivals, like the Festival of Booths, for example, which, you know, they would uh, commemorate the time when uh, God brought them out of Egypt and led them in the desert for 40 years, right? Now, they would remember, even hundreds of years, even thousands of years on from that event, they would remember the sins committed in the desert, they would remember those sins, and they would confess those sins, Uh, you know, and the idea was that they would recognise that this same thing that's in that generation is in them. It was like it was meant to be an antidote to repeating those things again and again and again. And if you've read, for those of you who have read the story of Israel in the Old Testament, those things did repeat didn't they? Again and again and again. And to prevent that repetition, because we all share the same nature, they would commemorate these festivals, and of course they would celebrate the good things that God did, but at the same time, in the midst of the celebration, they would also lament the sins of the past. And the more they lamented the sins of the past, the more they gave thanks and were joyful for the gift of God's grace. And so the sorrow and the joy belong together. In fact, without the sorrow, there was no joy because what are we rejoicing? We're rejoicing in the grace of God. And the Bible says that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And so the more we face what's wrong, the more we rejoice in what God is doing to make it right. It's a very close connection between celebration and this process of public penitence instead. Penitence is being sad about being sorry, right, about things that have gone wrong. 
And their response would not be, oh, that generation of Israelites that lived in the, what a bunch of absolute idiots, right? That's not, God, no, don't respond like that. No, they would say, Lord, have mercy on us. See, that would be powerful. That whenever we're confronted by evil, whether past or, you know, past or present, whatever, that our response would be, oh Lord, have mercy on us. Because this is about us. And so this is what they would do. And they would pray uh, prayers like um, Psalm 106. Listen to this. Remember me, Lord, when you show favour to your people. Come to my aid when you save them, that I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may share in the joy of your nation and join in your inheritance, and and join your inheritance in giving praise. Look look at this, verse six. We have sinned even as our ancestors did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. This is identification. We carry the same human nature. This is corporate confession. It's them saying, Lord, have mercy on us. And then look what it says. When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember to your many kinds. They, re- they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. And it goes through and it lists this litany of sins that were like three and a half thousand years ago. Jewish people still do this sort of thing. And my suggestion is mm, maybe we should too. Where they were driven to this place of Lord, yeah, when we read scripture and we read about those people and how they rebelled against God, we're looking in a mirror. We're looking in a mirror. Oh Lord, have mercy on us. There's an amazing story in uh, Ezra, um, the book of Ezra, and uh, Ezra is one of the, uh, one of the, the, the leading characters in the, in the amazing story that is told in the Old Testament uh, of the Bible. So it's like the first 80% uh, of the Bible. And Ezra was a very godly man. And uh, he'd come from a long way away and he'd come back to his people in Jerusalem. And they were in a terrible, terrible place. Uh, they'd, after God having shown them so much kindness over, uh, over, you know, over so long, they had rebelled against God. And I don't mean to get into the details, but they, they had rebelled against God. And Ezra, this godly man, is shocked by this, right? And he's, and he's angry about this. And so he comes into, this is, this is what it says in Ezra chapter 9. He says, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. These are customary ways of expressing grief, right? Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and I prayed. Look at this. I am too ashamed, he said, and disgraced. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our, do you notice that? Our, 
my Lord, forgive me. I, hang on, Ezra, but you hadn't done anything wrong. I mean, if anyone could claim, you know, some element of moral superiority, this is the guy, and yet this is the guy that says, oh Lord, have mercy on us. He chooses to identify. He doesn't set himself off from that. He identifies with that. And this amazing moment, this leads to a moment of profound revival for God's people. Because someone said, well, I'm gonna be the first one to step in and draw a grace circle. Say, well, we need grace here. We need grace on this ground. We need grace on this blood-soaked ground, Lord. Lord, have mercy on us. I'm gonna be the first one to step in, says Ezra. And confess. And he leads this mighty, mighty revival. I have this, I have this lately, this growing, this growing vision of something amazing that we can do together. I think we can build, you know, we, we're, called a, we're called as a church to be a light to the world, right? And, and let me suggest a way that we can get that light blazing, right? Like really blazing. We're going to build a bonfire, right? We're going to build a bonfire, like a burnt offering, like the burnt offerings that you, that you read about uh, in, in the Old Testament. Right? We're going to build a bonfire. We're going we're gonna to bring all, see, see what, and what we're going to bring to put on that altar of burnt offering, what we're going to bring, we're not going to bring righteousness, right? Because sometimes we think, right, if I'm going to shine, shine as a light, I'm going to bring, I've got to bring righteousness, right? I'm going to be more righteous than other people, okay? Now, the bad news is that you're not. I mean, no offence or anything, but you're not. The good news is, is that Jesus Christ suffered and died on a cross, God in the flesh, so that you could receive forgiveness and grace. That's the good news. So, God is calling everyone everywhere not to come and bring righteousness, but to bring sin, right? To bring sin, to bring all of that dysfunction, all of that, uh, all of that rebellion, all of that God complex, to bring it all and make a big pile, a big bonfire. And not only your, not only your sin, but like choose actually to, to, you know, it's powerful when we actually confess even the sins of, of our generation. So we can stop as Christians looking, oh, this world, oh, it's so evil out there. Isn't it evil out there? You know, because we, sometimes we come across like that. Don't, I mean, not you. I know you would never do that. But sometimes we, if I may say it, that we come across that way. You know, sitting in our little walled, you know, righteous city, oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, you know, all the terrible things. But what if, what if here's a, here's, Here's what I'm suggesting. Here's a better way to shine as a light. What if we say, oh, Lord, have mercy on us? What if we do what Ezra did? And we actually confess those sins, identify with them and own that sin and drag it in. Right, here's some, oh, there's some sin here. Let's not judge. Let's grab it, identify with, oh, we're pulling this in. We're gonna put this on the bonfire. Oh, here's something else. Not, oh, oh, that's just so evil. Not do this, but actually say, no, I'm gonna grab this. Lord, have mercy on us. And I'm gonna grab that and I'm gonna put it on the pile. Man, we're gonna build a massive bonfire and it's gonna blaze as a shining light in this land that needs to see some light, <laughs> doesn't it? Needs to see some light.
enough self-righteousness, you know, enough moralism. Man, we're just, everyone's judging everyone else. That's kind of human nature and we do it too. So let's own that and say, Lord, we're sorry for that. We're sorry that we ever did that. We choose to identify and we're gonna drag some stuff onto that altar. And I think we're gonna make some time. I mean, we're gonna start doing that now, but I reckon we're gonna make some time in the next, I don't know when. I'm not good at organising things, so I'll, we'll have a think about uh, how we can do this. Uh, but I'll tell you, I, we, we're going to have a time of corporate confession as a church. And we're going to repent on behalf of our land, our nation. And we're going to say, Lord, we have sinned like Ezra. And we're going to build a bonfire in this place. All right, stand up. We're gonna enter through the door that Jesus gave us to enter through. We're gonna take these elements, I can get the music team to come up, thanks guys. We're gonna take these elements, the cup that represents the shed blood of Jesus for our sins and the bread that represents the broken body of Jesus, His sacrifice for us. And we're gonna remind ourselves of grace. This is a grace zone. And I encourage you to come forward as the music team plays quietly. I'm gonna encourage you to come forward and there's a couple of spots up the back and take the cup and take the bread. And I encourage you to go back to your seat and you can do this you know, in families or groups or you can do it individually, however you wanna do it. Uh, I encourage you to actually confess. Confess to God, Lord, forgive me. Lord, have mercy upon us. I want you to pray that prayer. Lord, have mercy upon us. And then drink and eat, or eat and drink, whichever way you want, you know, and actually receive grace so that grace will pour like a river into this space. I believe grace is beginning to pour like a river in this. There's an invitation here, folks. Oh man, we're gonna, we're gonna there's gonna, the river is gonna flow in this place. We're gonna, we're gonna, we've got something fresh coming for us here, I believe. Like I've tasted, we've got something fresh coming to us, right? We've got a fresh wind about to blow in, right? And this is opening the windows, right? Lord, have mercy on us. Let's pray together. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, Lord. We are lost without You. Lord, we need Your grace here. Lord, we need Your grace here in this church. Lord, we have sinned against You. Lord, we have rebelled against You. We confess today, Lord, our sins and the sins of our forefathers. Lord, we confess today the sins of our nation. Lord, have mercy upon us, have mercy upon us. Would you rain down grace upon us? Because Jesus, Jesus, you are our only hope. Because whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. So Lord, today as we take these symbols that You gave us of Your sacrifice for us, Lord, may we sacrifice ourselves for this nation that we live in, 
for this city, for our families, that we might become a light burning bright on that altar of sacrifice. Thank you, Jesus. We celebrate Jesus today. We celebrate grace. And may the fresh wind of your spirit blow through this place. In Jesus' name. I encourage you to come forward in your own time and up the back as well. Let's do this together.